This is The Rational Perspective. I'm Alec Hogg. In this episode, meet the extraordinary scientist, Dr. Vivian Ming. Probably because of the premium that it puts on curiosity, my trade seems to attract the most interesting people. But even by our high standards, there are a few like Neil Jacobson, who moved on from newsrooms to boardrooms and thence out of the media industry entirely to indulge his passion for learning as a senior partner at Future World International. I mention this because we have to thank Neil for introducing the fascinating Dr. Vivian Ming to South Africa. California born and bred, Dr. Ming is a cognitive neuroscientist, entrepreneur and member of the faculty at the pioneering Singularity University. She's also one of the world's leading experts in artificial intelligence and did her entire undergraduate degree in a single year, and this after being homeless for a few years before that. It's a story that's as extraordinary as her insights. But she only touches on that in this discussion that we had today. I caught up with her after she'd blown away an appreciative audience at PwC's new Waterfall City headquarters near Johannesburg. And of course, started off with the obvious. Have you been to South Africa before? Is this your first visit? No, no, I've been, oh gosh, maybe my first visit was five, six years ago. Uh, Actually, Neil, he just cold called me and I thought, who the the hell is this person? And um, came down here to Johannesburg. I've now, every year since I've been here, two, three times. I haven't really gotten outside of Cape Town or Johannesburg, but and only ever come to work. Um, but it's been lovely every time. Hmm. So I guess you're not really uh, feeling or sensing the changes in the country. Well, you know, I came early enough. I did uh, a talk completely unrelated to Future World where we were here for the uh, Ackerman family was hosting the World Consumer Goods Forum uh, down in Cape Town. So Pepsi and L'Oreal and Campbell's Soup, everyone was down there. And, uh, you know, I got to meet Cyril Ramaphosa, uh, uh, minister at the time, and although I heard murmurings that he would be more. And it has been interesting to see some growth and change. It's not been an enormous amount of time. But, you know, it's one thing for a white American to show up in South Africa and uh, experience what feels very similar and what feels very different, but then see it change in sort of time lapse coming back every five, six months over the next five years. It's been fascinating. Vivian, how do you find the South African audiences? Well, you know, I get to travel all around the world, uh, and it's always interesting to get to see how people view the world differently. Uh, right here in South Africa, there's an interesting uh, bit of a trade-off. Uh, I think South Africa fairly and genuinely sees itself as a leader in the the continent and, uh, you know, with an infrastructure and a productivity level that you simply don't see anywhere else in Africa. Um, at the same time, there's a degree of, um, uh, you know, we 
we are part of the industrialized world uh, and yet so distant from it in many ways. Uh, a, a sense of, of keeping up, whether it's with Europe or with America or others, um, that has always intrigued me about South Africa. Uh, it's one of those regions I love to do work in uh, because my work is fundamentally about how do we improve people. And while South Africa is a country of great disparity, it's also a country with first world infrastructure, as challenging as it might be on occasion. And that's a wonderful opportunity. Every little kid that you can capture and bring into that infrastructure has the chance to be a part of the entire global world. And when I travel to many other places, it just doesn't have that same degree of connection and aspiration. It's great context because quite often when you're in the middle of the woods, uh, you well, you can't see the woods for the trees. But the, the big thing, I guess, when one talks about artificial intelligence, and that's what you were wowing your audience uh, by this morning in your discussion, is it does take away the mundane jobs. Machines replace people doing those mundane jobs. Of course, South Africa is sitting with a massive unemployment level, and it, it really just wants to get people into any jobs, even if they are mundane. So is it more at risk by the moves towards AI? You know, uh, there are two ways to answer that question, and they're both fundamental to the point that you're making. One is, what are we defining as mundane? Um, by most people's estimation, what we're talking about is warehouse jobs, uh, truck drivers, um, uh, logistics work, agriculture, mining. But the truth is, um, yes, those jobs are at risk. But as I go out and I build a robot to pick strawberries or to... Uh, move boxes around a warehouse or autonomous mining equipment, that is expensive and it's difficult. Uh, it's actually very challenging uh, to displace humans out entirely of those sorts of jobs. Uh, instead, a better way of thinking about the impact of actual robots on human physical labor is it's a lot like migration. When a robot comes into a factory or a robot comes into a mine, it has an impact that's very economically similar to a big migration of uh, foreign workers coming into the same labor market. Uh, so every robot you buy, uh, it's the equivalent of three or four workers entering that market. It decreases wage uh, uh, power. It increases unemployment. So the jobs don't disappear, but they genuinely undergo stress. And most people holding those sorts of jobs have very little wage power anyways. Uh, I come from California. We have an enormous population of people uh, working in agriculture, largely both legal and illegal immigrant labor from Mexico and Central America. And if we build a robot to pick a strawberry, well, it's a sorry truth, but it is the truth that they'll just do it for less because they don't have any else, anything else to do anyways. Um, so that's one side of the stories. We need to be genuinely worried. If we go and we replace all of the lorries uh, and all of the mining work 
then we genuinely need to worry what to do with all these people. The recipe for every civil war ever has been a large number of young men with nothing but free time on their hands. On the other hand, though, we need to redefine mundane. Mundane isn't just low-skill physical labor. If you are doing the same job tomorrow that you were doing last week, then someone like me is trying to build an AI to do that job. And if we succeed, that AI will work cheaper, faster, and better than you do. Now, what do I mean by that? If your job is – you're a lawyer, a pretty work-a-day lawyer. You're not doing cutting-edge work, uh, elite contract work, or coming up with novel defenses for criminal defendants. Your job is someone walks through the door, and in a moment you eyeball them and you say, all right, I know this – they're going to want a will, and it's going to be my standard will be. Um, for hundreds of years, that's been a legitimate middle class, upper middle class, high paying job because it was complex. It was cognitively complex, but it still wrote. Historically, we didn't have anything that could do cognitively complex rote jobs, but now we do. And this is, I think, what people will be surprised about. Artificial intelligence is going to blindside the professional middle class. If you're not doing creative labor, if you don't spend your time actively solving novel problems, I would be very worried about uh, your position in the economy. Uh, there are jerks like me that want to make a killing building a startup to do your job for a price you wouldn't be able to pay your rent or feed your family for. Yeah, anything routine, I guess. It's interesting uh, from, from our own perspective at, uh, at Business News, our company, we use Xero, uh, which is a, mm -hmm. a accounting software package, uh, which gives us the ability to, well, it talks to the bank accounts and, and uh, we don't need bookkeepers anymore. We use Stripe, uh, which means that we don't have to have credit card machines. It can all be done online. We use um, uh, Slack, which means we don't have to send out emails um, and, and clog up inboxes because it's all there. And those are just three little tools that has enabled us to become a very different company because of, of, of technology. But when you talk about artificial intelligence, anything routine, it seems, is now a threat. And And what is the it's hard to, to find solutions, but but what does an individual in the workplace do when they see this wave coming at them? Yeah, so uh, in a sense, what's the silver lining of all of this? Uh, surely and hopefully it isn't just about making Jeff Bezos or Jack Ma unbelievably rich because they already are. Um there's got to be something that's worth doing here. And I work in the space of artificial intelligence. I use it largely for philanthropic reasons. Um, but I wouldn't do it if I didn't think there was a genuine good to be had. Uh, we just need to be realistic about that good. Okay, so what do we do about it? Um, so right now, if there is a job, whether it's low-skill or university-trained professional labor, that essentially, as you might imagine, if I could get anyone with the same skill set to walk in the door and do exactly the same job, and that job is economically valuable, it will be automated, um, or at least 
80% of the jobs, 80% of the tasks that make it up. So if you spend in your 40 to 50 hour work week, if you spend the vast majority of your hours doing complex but rote tasks, all of that goes away. The, the promise of artificial intelligence is what's left. Who wants to spend their time doing caseload work and reading contracts? You want to decide what to do about the loopholes, how to formulate a new strategy as a result. No one wants to waste their time mining through a whole bunch of x-rays looking for results. Wouldn't it be great if the AIs could find these vastly better than a human could do? But then you, as a doctor, work with your patient to come up with a unique and personalized treatment plan. In essence, what I'm saying is um, we need to move everyone into the creative class. We need a society of explorers. Um, reframe every job into uh, how do I bring a unique perspective to the problem that I'm working on? If all of the rote tasks, however sophisticated they are, are both automatable and mundane because anyone in theory could do them, then your value as an employee or as a talent uh, in the labor force is that very thing which makes you unique. Literally, when I bring someone into my labs uh, or into one of my companies, I don't hire them because they know how to program or because they know about brains. I can teach them that. I learned it. They can learn it. I hire them because they will have an idea that I would never have had myself. And that is their unique contribution to what we do. And the kind of work I do is work uh, in some sense that I think everyone loves, we get to tackle novel problems all around the world. Uh, we work with the UN. We work with parents of dying kids. Uh, we work in education. Actually, we visited with NAPSERS here in uh, South Africa, down in Cape Town. To, we're going to support them on an education initiative they're working on. I get to do the most phenomenal, uh, truly groundbreaking work, not because I am uniquely special, but because my life has really convinced me that my value is what I uniquely bring. Yeah, I know how to build artificial intelligence. I have some very fancy, fancy degrees. But the truth is, you know, want to know the best thing I ever did in earning those degrees? When my dissertation committee told me not to do the research that I was wanting to do, I ignored them. And I did it anyways. And it became a nature paper. It became a novel set of algorithms that people still use today. It became a treatment for people who are deaf. It was, um, it was truly new. And it happened because even though I was a little low-powered student, I believed I was there for a purpose. And I took the risk to do something better. Uh, not because I'm smarter than anyone else uh, or that I have some magical capability I just believed my value was what I brought differently than everyone else, even my dissertation committee. And it paid off. Imagine a society made up of people like that. So it's, it, it really is a little bit about confidence, about exploring, about being curious. But what about you? Where did you, where did you even start before that dissertation committee, uh, this interest in oh, well, artificial well, intelligence? I, yeah, I have a fairly unusual life. And in some ways, I think that truly has served me as much as I regret a lot of wasted years. So, uh, you know, I was born in California on the coast. Life was 
wonderful. Um, I, when I was a little kid, I was supposed to win a Nobel Prize. That was just kind of understood. It wasn't work incredibly hard so you could win a Nobel Prize. It was just an expectation. Uh, and even when I was a little kid, everything I did that was supposed to live up to that life failed. Uh, and by the time I got to university, I was miserable and I flunked out and I ended up homeless. Uh, I wish every billionaire out of Silicon Valley, uh, every uh, newly minted potentate in Shanghai could fail, fail in a way that there's no excuse, but that it was you so that you could understand how easy it is for any life to slip into that mode. Um, I was fortunate. I got off the streets. I got back in my life. It taught me some very hard lessons, though it took me years to learn them. And I had the chance to go back to university. I did my entire undergraduate degree in a single year, and I got perfect grades in every course. Uh, I went to Carnegie Mellon University. I did a PhD in psychology and uh, another in computational neuroscience. Then I was at Stanford and then faculty at Berkeley. Uh, then I started five companies, uh, an AI company in every case, but in education, uh, in workforce, um, uh, on and on and again, trying to make changes in people's lives by doing something no one had ever done before. Uh, how do we replace all tests with an artificial intelligence observing students while they learn and never ask them to do anything other than learn and grow. Uh, we published papers, we built a whole company and sold it uh, doing exactly that. Um, and again, you know, there are amazing people in the artificial intelligence space and uh, uh, people that have business instincts that I have never had in my life. The reason I've been successful is I know what my purpose is. I am here to make better people, to maximize human potential. And I built my companies to serve that purpose. I was able to hire people, amazing people at those companies that never in a million years would have worked for me on some, you know, blockchain for uh, dogs startup. Um, but I was hired, able to hire people away from Google and Facebook because working for me meant changing people's lives. Uh, I knew my purpose. I took crazy chances to achieve it. And it was that sort of dedication that really made a transformation. And so then I started wondering along the way as a scientist and then as a technologist, um, is there a way to grow that kind of person, not by chance or by misfortune, but by intention? What if we could design life experiences for every little kid growing up in South Africa that would make them truly believe correctly that their hard work would pay off. They would make them resilient to the kinds of setbacks that cause most first-time entrepreneurs to fail. Uh, it turns out sending people to university is a wonderful thing to do once you've built a high-potential person, uh, but it will not transform a person that doesn't have these fundamentals. So most of my work today is about identifying those fundamentals, both in kids and in adults. Uh, I happen to use artificial intelligence to do this sort of work, but it's amazing. We run massive scale projects with Accenture uh, and uh, looking now with the World Bank and the United Nations on what does it take 
to take even a university educated, highly trained individual and transform them and from someone that does what they're told to someone that explores. Uh, and it's immensely hard work. I don't want to, there's no short sell here. People change because you rewire their brain and they, you rewire their brain to rich life experiences. But those experiences can be designed into work itself. They can be designed into our education system. So I get to be a professional mad scientist and see, can I rewire people's brains, but doing it by engineering better jobs. But it's so interesting because the whole world wants to rewire now, uh, reboot, find something new. In in, in a South African context, uh, the, the, the look ahead is, uh, and I'm sure you've come across this, that South Africa uh, wants to be a developmental state, but an entrepreneurial development state. I don't know if you've come across the work of Mariana Mazzucato, uh, but she's a, she's a rising economist um, who is engaging uh, a lot with the South African government, and they're, they're starting to think differently about things. Why should you have this big public sector where, where nobody really, or the perception is that they don't add value, whereas... You, you are very well aware in the United States, many of the, of the, of the fundamentals for the incredible uh, economy there has been put together by far-sighted people in the fu- uh, public sector, DARPA, etc. Um, so it's just an interesting, it's, it's, it's another interesting angle that one's coming from. What do you think about all of that? What do you, when you, when you go beyond the, the obvious of, uh, of, of, of stimulating um, thought, but to to the role that can be played by sectors that have been, and particularly the public sector, which is being perceived or maybe uh, painted by the media as being this uh, this or, this uh, useless uh, sterilization of of resources rather than something that could add to it. Well, I, you know, I think that the public sector clearly can be a driver of change. And it clearly can be a drag. And of course, one of the intrinsic problems with any public sector everywhere is you end up with a lot of political capture and so patronage and, um, you know, fundamental job security uh, applies in. And this can be incredibly um, uh, destructive towards people's uh, actually going out and doing creative work in the world. Uh, but it doesn't fundamentally have to be that way. One of our most fascinating findings, I was the chief scientist of one of the first companies to ever do uh, artificial intelligence uh, in hiring. And more specifically, we did it for sourcing. How do you go out and find people to talk to in the first place uh, and bring them in? And uh, there is an enormous story to go behind that entire experience. But one of the interesting things we found along the way is one of the biggest predictors of high quality work. I actually gave a TED talk about this. We ended up calling endogenous motivation, that drive that comes from within. Uh, when you look at elite athletes, the, the, the ones that aren't just, uh, you know, one year they have a great season, but year after year after year, they're amazing. When you look at the highest performers, the best salespeople, the best software developers, what you see again and again is they do it for themselves. They don't do it for the incentives. They're not there for job security. They aren't there for the bonus, even though ironically and somewhat paradoxically, they end up getting the biggest bonuses. Um, What's very clear is when all of the incentives disappear and it's just them, they continue to perform. 
uh, the public sector could work that way. If people felt that they could work for the greater good in a way that made people's lives better and they had autonomy. This is, is one of the challenges of the public sector is it typically involves very low autonomy work. You don't actually make decisions. You're carrying out other people's agendas. And for that matter, that happens in big business as well. You want to see a company solve low productivity problems, uh, particularly when it comes to innovation and creativity. You need to loosen up. Uh, there's a famous so- sociological dimension of tightness and looseness. Uh, I find it in my own work. We call it employee-driven or management-driven variability in organizations. This can be NGOs, governments, uh, corporations. When they get big enough, these become dominant factors. If you are tight and management-driven, uh, then a very small number of people make a set of decisions Everyone else carries it out. You have great risk mitigation. Uh, you have in you know societal communities, you have lower crime rates. You have lower um, teen pregnancies, all desirable things. But what you trade off is intellectual property creation, innovation, uh, job creation and development. What I'd actually like to argue is it doesn't have to be a trade off. If you figure out how to generate in people that drive to explore and create, you can actually find a middle ground between the two where the purpose of leadership isn't to tell people what to do. It's to tell them why to do it. Why are we here today? What is it that Cyril Ramaphosa is trying to achieve? He's the why. He's not the what or the how. Now everyone down below him has their own agency to go out and create change. Why do we trust them with that responsibility, which I'm willing to bet is not something many leaders want to do. But if you look at the highest performance organizations, you look at organizations like Google as as um, challenging as it's been over the last year for tech companies. These companies still have wildly outsized returns. Uh, what some people call intangible capital, where their returns are not explained by all of the formal ways in which we measure companies. What it turns out, the reason why organizations like Google are so successful is because uh, they let their employees explore. Now, they do it somewhat lazily by simply hiring the very best people right up front um, and then letting them go explore. I have found in my work It doesn't have to be that way. All you have to build into people is the courage to do what they believe. Um, But you also have to build into them the purpose, the strength of purpose to follow that why. Hmm. So if you're selfish, doing what you believe uh, pulls organizations apart. But if you can find alignment around purpose, uh, then you get the exact opposite where even though people are nominally acting under their own agency, they're actually carrying out the collective vision. Uh, and it'll actually, that, that continued flexibility, the fact that there is imperfect alignment, it becomes desirable. Teams uh, doing creative problem solving are better when they bring diverse perspectives and when they feel free to share those diverse perspectives. Um, And that's a a virtual universal. All teams perform better in those constructs. Uh, 
So we want to build that. We want to build that in terms of government and society. We want to build that in terms of corporations. Yeah, as a Silicon Valley native, um, I, I have a certain starry-eyed uh, quality when it comes to the very Wild West approach of tech companies. But the truth is, I learned the hard way that that is not the right way to solve every problem. We need that trade-off where smart people are empowered to solve problems but where they are aligned because there is a purpose bigger than themselves that they are trying to achieve. You can do that in government, uh, but you can't do it lazily, uh, not in any organization. It is hard work to maintain purpose and make everyone clearly understand why they're doing what they're doing. That was the extraordinary Dr. Vivian Ming. And this has been The Rational Perspective. Until the next time, cheerio.